Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks again for being a part of the conversation. Thank you for just really engaging in what we're talking about in how we can love uh, children and families around the world with excellence. And, and today we have a show that uh, no doubt we'll get into that. No doubt we'll get into some things that if you're doing work around the world, you will um, definitely learn something that will help you. No doubt about that. I'm Phil Dark, your host. And with me is Brandon Stiver, my brother. We get to do this together. Brandon, how you doing? I'm doing good, man. I'm I'm excited for this show. In some ways, getting this guest on felt like uh, five years in the making because he was such a mm-hmm. staple early on. But uh, but I'm doing good. Uh, you know, it's it's been summertime, which has been at the time of recording. It's been summertime, and yet it's going by like crazy fast. So, you know, I don't know how it is in your family. Your kids are a little bit older than my kids, but the schedules just get so thrown off. And mm-hmm. we're doing ballet camp one week and youth camp the other week and basketball and all this kind of stuff. So I'm just holding tight, you know, but uh, enjoying some warmer weather and. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. And house projects. House projects are like yeah. ubiquitous around my house. I'm doing another sure. retaining wall, which just seems insane to me. Uh, but it's a lot of rain where you're at. So you need to retain a lot. So yeah, it's kind of like a, <laughs> it's more ornamental. I don't know if you can have yeah, an ornamental uh, sure. <laughs> retaining wall. I mean, yeah. you know, our house, our house, it's a fixer upper, as our audience is aware. I've mentioned it before. Uh-huh. But uh we just need to define some spaces, man. We just need to define some spaces, including the parking area. So that's what I'm doing. Cool. But well, good. It's all coming along. How about you, that. man? What's up? I, I mean, you're talking about summer. I feel like, you know, I blinked and summer is now almost over. I mean, my daughter is going back to get her school pictures today. And I have, um, we've, it's been crazy. It's been super busy with good stuff, kids going to camp. We went to family camp. We went on a, a spontaneous road trip. I can't remember if I talked about that here to go see my daughter. 15 hour drive. I know it was a 11 hour drive there and 11 hour drive back. We just decided on a Friday morning, let's go, let's just go do it. And we did wow. it. It was super fun. Never had done that before. Like I've always been like, let's just do it. And my, you know, Becca's always just, just oh, I don't know. We got this, we got that. And she's like, yeah, let's go. I'm like, all right, where you change your mind? Let's pack and get in the car. Packed up, talked about it at like 9 a.m., got on the road by noon, and uh, spent a weekend with my daughter down in Arizona where she's working at a Young Life camp and went to Grand Canyon and all kinds of cool stuff. It was a blast. Um, but uh, but yeah, stuff like that. And and it's been great. I think I'm assuming 99% of people listening to this podcast will totally relate with what we just talked about about the summer. Yeah. It's We're getting busier and busier and busier and busier and busier in our lives. Um, there's so much stuff. There's so many opportunities that we can do. And so I think that's really the, the continual challenge for us is choosing those right things to do. Even with the, the high school camp and junior high camp for my daughter and my son, the question was, you know, okay, you can go, but we already go to family camp. So, you, and you guys go to a Christian, you know, one goes to a Christian school, we're very dialed in. So it's not, they're not necessarily the audience for that camp as much as they, you know, people want them to go to, to help out and, and to be there and to learn, obviously. It's not like they got it all figured out, but it's not like they don't already right. get to go to a camp. So I go, yes, right. this is especially for you. This is a pr- this is a privilege, not a right. And so if you're going to go, you got to work for it. So right. they've been working for it. They've been doing, we went and washed some cars with my son. Everyone's overpaying, of course, but they're working for it. And I love yeah. that part of it. So that's been part of the summer too, is really trying to teach some of those lessons and you know, we, as you know, when you have multiple kids, you learn on the first ones what you didn't do so great. And we're now trying to do those on the, the younger ones. Like, okay, what are some of those lessons that we've realized our older kids apparently didn't really capture and maybe sure. we never taught them. Let's make sure with these younger ones, at least we teach them so we can't say, okay, we didn't try. So that's a lot of that's going on this summer too. And I just, I love I love every part of the year, honestly, for different reasons. The one thing I don't love about the summer, especially this summer out in California, it's been blazing hot and, um, and that's not that much fun, but you know, it could be worse. It could be, you know, monsoons. I was just out in Colorado doing some training for, uh, the Colorado state 
soccer team and you know they had to move stuff inside because they basically had rain every single day this summer right I had a couple of my friends out there like hey welcome to Portland you know right. and uh, or Seattle <laughs> it's just been raining so all that to say summer's been great um but I I gotta say summer's been great but I am more excited about this interview we have today mm-hmm. and so tell our guest we've been teasing it enough like this guest and all this stuff if you clicked on this chances are you know you know who it is, is right. but it's such a good friend of mine we've done some work together and I love this man like a brother and um he has been uh, a guy that you know, there's people out there that you, you know, you text encouragement to or you receive encouragement from whatever. And, and it seems like, you know, a lot of people just don't respond, but this guy, super busy, he responds and it's not just some fake response. It's a response and it's checking in even before the episode, we're checking in our families. And I hope that everyone out there experiences the friendships that you can have when you truly work hand in hand with people. Um, even though we haven't worked directly on a project outside of the book that we that we worked on together. Um, I feel like we're we're teammates, and yeah. uh, and that doesn't always happen. So anyway, who do we got? Well, you got you just gave him quite the intro, but but he is the real deal. We got Peter Greer uh, from Hope Hope International uh, on the show today. We're going to be talking about uh, his new newest book. I mean, the guy's like along with a co <laughs> at least one co author turning out books on a regular basis, um, but he's just. He's just a good guy to talk to, you know, if nothing else, he's a friend, very thoughtful, authentic, professional, like just, just the right kind of guy to talk to. So, uh, he's been on the show, uh, for those that have first signed on, I mean, he was one of the first few episodes that you did fill, um, and back in 2016 and then again in 2017, again in 2018, yep. he was recurring and then, then we haven't had him for a while. So got to get him back on. Episode it's, three. Episode, episode three. number three yep was the first time and uh so anyways we're getting him back on the show today so without further ado uh let's get into our conversation with peter greer well peter greer it is so great to get you back on think orphan i can't believe it's been five years since you were on the show and we were just talking before start record this is your fourth time setting the record setting it you know so you know i guess brandon's been on more and rick morton was on more but that doesn't count um as a guest four times that's so cool and it's because there's just so much goodness coming out of you so can you just take a moment and just remind the audience like who you are what you're doing share about a little bit about your work with hope international yeah sure thanks and i guess the short answer is uh Apparently, I am a friend of Phil and a friend of Brandon. For you guys to invite me on again, that is yes. that is who I am. But yeah, so I've been working with Hope International for 19 years, and uh, we are a Christ-centered organization that invests in entrepreneurs using the tools of savings groups and microfinance institutions to get capital to individuals that have the capacity to work and just have not had the uh, opportunity to have the tools to work. So we invest in the dreams of families as we proclaim and live the gospel. We do it in 24 countries, started in Eastern Europe in Ukraine and uh, expanded to Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. And uh, cumulatively now uh, we have served, um, yeah, we're coming up on almost 3 million families uh, that we've been able to serve over Hope International's history and invested $1.6 billion dollars uh, into their enterprises and their businesses. So that's who we are. That's what we're about. That's amazing. And I, all, all I got to say, folks, is, you know, there's there's a lot of people that I've worked with over the years um, in all kinds of different capacities. And if there is one man who has uh, just really been a great friend, a great leader, um, it's you, Peter. So I just want to just say the real deal, if you're looking at Hope International to, to work with an organization to invest in an organization, hope is you can't go wrong. Like there is nothing that there is, should be no hesitation if you're thinking about it. So just, you know, it starts from the top and I appreciate you, uh, Peter. And I just wanted to, to say that, you know, because it's, it's absolutely 100% truth and, and you, you don't always know that. So just thank you, Peter, for being consistent and uh, just doing what God's calling you to do. I so appreciate that. And you know, one of the things that I love about Hope International, and this starts with the board of directors, 
but there is no ambiguity uh, that what we are about as an organization is not actually primarily about the organization. Mm -hmm. We're part of mm -hmm. a bigger cause. We're part of a bigger organization, which means when we have conversations with other organizations, we approach that as like we're in this work together. And I think that just opens up all kinds of doors for partnership, for friendship, and uh, just this recognition that we, if we're thinking about just what we can do as an organization, I think we're thinking too small. And I yep. don't think we are thinking about what God is inviting all of us to be a part. So that's been a great journey um, as well, just saying not just how do we grow an organization, but who are we doing this with outside of hope? Right. And what is the bigger cause that we are about? And that has been so animating, so encouraging, and developed just wonderful friendships as a result. Yep meet people that uh, were in this together. Absolutely. And you basically just gave a plug for Rooting for Rivals, which is your other book there um, <laughs> that we talked about, I think the last time you were on the show. And so great book to talk about collaboration, true collaboration, not just saying, hey, let's work together, but truly working together, truly celebrating, cheering each other on, celebrating successes. Um, that's what that's what I love. So yeah, really good. Yeah, uh, Peter Hope International, the real deal. Uh, Phil Dark, the real fanboy. Uh, it's it, it's Pretty all much. very real. It's all very real here, guys. You know, uh, Peter, I would love you know as you were just highlighting. I mean, one point six billion dollars invested into all of these enterprises throughout the world. You know, hyper focused on poverty poverty alleviation and kind of all that that entails. You know, as you've been going at it, even just with the organization for going on twenty years here. You know, what have been some of your biggest lessons learned? You know, you mentioned starting in Eastern Europe. We're going to talk about Ukraine here in a moment. But, you know, starting there, expanding to all these other places, uh, you know, increasing the amount of investment and support and, and programmatic support as well. And doing that for 20 years. I mean, I'm going to make a wild assumption that who you were, you know, when you started a couple of decades ago versus now is is that you've learned some things along the way. What what have been some of those biggest lessons learned as you've been involved in this work? Yeah, yeah, thanks. I, I, the, the first one that comes to mind is just the benefit of a focus. It is really hard to do one thing well, let alone trying to do multiple approaches well. And this does connect to the previous point that we were just discussing is if you don't believe that you have to do everything, um, if you are open to partnership, that allows you to say, and what is the unique way that we can contribute with who we are, with the way that we're wired, and to have that ability of staying focused. So I think part of the answer to that, Brandon, is that we have been hyper-focused on uh, Christ-centered economic development using the tools of savings groups and microfinance institutions and small and medium enterprises. That is who we are. And while we believe in all these other aspects, we do not believe that we have to be the one to do it. And so that opens us up to partnership. It opens us up to hopefully being experts in a small set of interventions and then allowing us to partner with others that have other critically important uh, areas for holistic development, uh, for caring for widows and orphans, for caring for individuals in poverty, for caring for communities in the full uh, range of services uh, and support uh, that would be helpful. So I think that is one of the key lessons learned is that focus has definitely yeah. been helpful. But then the relatedly, the danger of that is then you can get so focused on a small number of things that you can think we've mastered it. And an organization that stops learning is an mm -hmm. organization that is in decline. So within that realm, and even though we have grown um, and uh, even though we are better implementers, certainly than we were you know, 20 years ago, the question is, how can we continue to listen, to learn, to grow, to adapt? And within that place, I really, um, you know, a lot of organizations have monitoring and evaluation efforts. There's a whole, you know, industry of how do we get better at monitoring and evaluation? Um, we, we added a word that I love, uh, but we added listening, monitoring, and evaluation as mm -hmm. our department. And we talk about the challenge that a lot of organizations have that, if we stop listening. Um, we have this stakeholder gap that those that oftentimes support us are not those that uh, receive the services. And so if we're not careful, we can slowly stop listening to the people that we serve that are should be at the very forefront of our mind, should be at the forefront of uh, who we are and what we're about. So 
Um, how do we intentionally, in a structured way, get better and better at listening, learning, and then applying uh, what it is that we learn so that we continue to grow? So it's it's that mix, right? It's focus, do a small number of things, try to do them really well, and never stop listening, never stop learning uh, so that uh, we can provide better services that have uh, more significant impact um, in the lives of the families that we serve. Yeah, no, I really, I really like that. And I'm glad that you bring that up. You know, when we talk about monitoring and evaluation, often what we're just looking at is the project cycle and kind of how can we improve the project cycle. But you have started to see organizations, especially ones that are forward thinking like Hope International that are saying, like they don't talk about, I see organizations not just saying M&E, but they'll say MEAL, M-E-A-L. Because it's monitoring, evaluation, accountability, and learning is one that I'm seeing. Or they'll say M-E-R-L, which is research and learning. Learning, listening, these go together. But I just I just love because we do talk a lot, and you're right, there's a whole industry around monitoring and evaluation, but it's to what end? Are we, be, are we using that so that we're held accountable, both uh, not just to you know our donors, but, but to the people that we're walking alongside and coming alongside? So I really love that, that you guys are incorporating those elements as you also get into your monitoring and evaluation frameworks. Um, so I, I want to kind of, we're, we're going to get into your most recent book uh, here in a few moments because I just absolutely think it's such a fitting book. Um, as I started to read it myself, I was like, oh, this is really a book for this moment. But I kind of want to talk about some of these moments. Um, you know, we are recording this in summer 2023. We may think that, you know, COVID-19 is just an afterthought at this point. And I know we all have the desire to just move on. And in many ways we have. Um, but when this started to, when the pandemic really started in 2020, um, there were a lot of, I don't know if it was just doomsayers or honest estimates saying this is really going to set back the work of global development. Um, and for an organization that is as focused on poverty alleviation and coming alongside vulnerable communities, doing that across a breadth of countries as Hope International is, I kind of wanted to get your guys' thoughts. At, you know, how have you interacted over the last few years? I'll just share really quick, uh, you know, one statistic that's coming from a credible source. This is from the World Bank. Uh, the World Bank stated that about 97 million more people are living on less than $1.90 a day because of the pandemic increasing the global poverty rate from 7.8 to 9.1 percent. 163 million more are living on less than $5.50 a day. Globally, three to four years of progress towards ending extreme poverty are estimated to have been lost. Okay, so this is this is World Bank numbers. Um, I know that if we were to say, what does William Easterly think versus Jeffrey Sachs, like we're going to Ending extreme poverty is 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 a really big goal, and of course we all want to strive towards that. So there's different ways to interpret, you know, this type of stuff. But globally, it says three to four years of progress towards ending extreme poverty are estimated to have been lost. I want to hear from you and and from your team and and the networks that you guys are working with, and how have you seen the COVID nineteen pandemic affect communities that Hope serves, and what are you guys seeing as some of the projected long term costs as a result of the pandemic? Brandon, everything that you just shared in those statistics are what we have seen and experienced in the places where we serve. And everyone was impacted by the pandemic, but not everyone was impacted in the same way. And the individuals living in places of financial poverty, they were hit the hardest. Um, and so uh, just to affirm, uh, that is what we've seen. That is the experience. And it has had a, a catastrophic impact on communities that were already in a vulnerable position. And we know this, right? right. Who's hurt most in a, in a crisis? It's the most vulnerable. It's, it's those that don't have the same safety net, that don't have the same cushion. Those are the individuals that are impacted the most significantly, the most severely. And I had one of uh, my colleagues um, who's serving in, in Asia um, said he was hearing the cries of hunger that he hadn't heard since the last famine. Like that was the reality in the places where we serve. And at the same time, I have never been more appreciative uh, for the colleagues that we get to work with. And in many ways, a crisis 
we believe, is the moment, the, 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 the best moment for the church to be the church, to lead with incredible compassion, sacrificial generosity, um, and to love God and love our neighbors with the full force, uh, everything that we have. And we were seeing that at the same time. One of the measures that we use for success at Hope International is whether or not individuals have a month's buffer zone in a time of a crisis, in a time of emergency. Can they, do they have access to savings and resources to help carry them through a month's disruption? Uh, we did a bunch of monitoring and evaluation in uh, 2019, answering that question and looking at the percent that goes up dramatically of individuals that have that ability. And then we saw those statistics. We saw that research being lived out that families that were part of hope were better able to withstand a shock. When the economy shuts down for three weeks, they still had the savings. They still had the ability. And coming out of the pandemic, uh, there is uh, more excitement um, about how can we help equip more families because there will be a future crisis, maybe not at a global level, uh, hopefully not for the foreseeable future, but at a national level, there absolutely are going to be cycles of crisis. And the question is, um, are those families in those communities equipped to withstand that shock without falling back into extreme poverty? And so that's an animating question uh, for us to try and see more families equipped to walk away from that ledge of disaster so that when a crisis comes, it doesn't push them into back into a position of, of dest destitution. Hey everyone, I wanted to tell you about one of my favorite conferences, which is coming up this October. It's the Replanted Conference, and if you are a foster parent, an adoptive parent, a safe family parent, or if you are involved as a support to these kinds of families, Replanted is the conference for you. The Replanted Conference will be held October 12th through 14th, 2023 in Chicago. But if you aren't able to make it to Chicago, don't worry. They've got simulcast sites in cities throughout the country. I was a part of one of the simulcast sites last year, and as an adoptive dad, I walked away refreshed, equipped, and inspired for this caregiving journey. I know you will be too. The highly specialized training, the stories from adult adoptees and foster alumni, and the invaluable community support will blow your mind. Not only that, but as a listener of Think Orphan, you get a special discount by using the coupon code 1MH10. That is $10 off with the code 1MH10. Guys, you don't want to miss this conference. Tell a friend and visit replantedconference.org to secure your spot today. Yeah, no, I think that that's really, really helpful um, in creating those buffers. And, you know, even as you mentioned, there's still going to be national crises. I mean, if we, we could go down the list, whether this is like political things or natural disasters that have happened since, you know, March 2020, right? I mean, we're talking like the coup in Myanmar, the famine in the Horn of Africa, we're talking uh, numerous. You look at West Africa right now. There's 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 just a coup in 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 Niger right now. Like that. Like these things are just going on on a regular basis. So the more that we can reach communities with meaningful support, so that they can you know with withstand as much as is possible. You know when these crises come about. Um, you know one of the obviously the crisis that's on a lot of people's minds right now is the is the war in ukraine is the russian invasion of ukraine um you had already mentioned you know this is you guys started off working in eastern europe and have been involved in ukraine for for a long time um so you know aside from that from the pandemic you know with your guys's extensive work in ukraine can you just share with us the effects of the war on the communities there and you know even what are the implications for poverty alleviation efforts and and offices and team and people that you guys uh have been working with uh in the country certainly hope international was founded after the fall of the soviet union and founded in an after aid uh was sent over and a pastor in zaporizhia uh, said you know what your help it's not helping us anymore uh, isn't there a way for you to help us help ourselves in the long term? Mm. And that really was the founding story of Hope International. And little did we know that uh, 25 years later, we would be back in a position that feels similar uh, to that time frame of, of true disaster um, again. Um, and 
for Hope International, 70% of our work was in the East. So regions that uh, are now either continue to be in conflict. We have three branch offices that are in areas that are now controlled uh, by Russia, uh, hopefully liberated very soon um, on that. But we have been on the front lines um, of trying to figure out how do we help in a time of crisis and then as quickly as possible get back to equipping Ukrainian entrepreneurs to rebuild their nation. And that has been our area of focus. So after the um, invasion, February 24th, the initial response was uh, partnering with making sure our staff are in positions of safety, partnering with churches to do everything possible that when individuals were fleeing the violence, the church was the place that they could go. So did these micro grants through our church network to allow them to have what they need to welcome those that are fleeing violence. Uh, but then the third stage uh, that we are in is, and then when there are opportunities, how are we helping Ukrainian uh, entrepreneurs uh, get back to work to provide for their nation and participate in the rebuilding? And I was in Ukraine uh, three months ago, had time with the staff, um, met some of the entrepreneurs that we serve. And one of the individuals, his name was Andre, and his uh, loan that he got from Hope International was to purchase a generator because there's been so much power disruption. Um, this was a way of keeping the restaurant open and providing light for his street um, on that. And uh, that is what he did. Um, and he employs those uh, individuals that now are internally displaced. And he is uh, having an incredible impact uh, in his community. And yeah, just spending time with, with the staff, um, spending time with uh, those that we serve. And um, while I so desperately want peace uh, for Ukraine. Um, Ukraine is not waiting for there to be a ceasefire before they engage in getting back to work, um, providing for their families and um, and supporting their nation uh, in this time. So that's been what we've been doing since that invasion. And um, yeah, again, desperately long and pray for peace. And in the meantime, how can we do everything possible to support our Ukrainian brothers and sisters? Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. You know, one of the things that you said there at the end, Peter, um, some uh, around like there, the Ukrainian people and those that you guys are coming alongside to serve, they don't want to wait. I think often we see when these crises do around uh, do do come about. You know, we can kind of think of you know we're gonna have Brian Vicker back on the show soon, but in in when helping hurts when it talks about okay, there's relief, then there's rehabilitation, and then there's development often what you, I mean, you guys have been working in the development space, right? That's the, that's been the core of your guys's work. Did you see at least initially that once that crisis started, or maybe this is, could even apply to another country, do you guys ever find yourselves being like, oh man, we have to like kind of shift back to kind of a relief type work. Sometimes you see NGOs do that, but you guys are also very focused and very like, you know, you have your core methodology of how you go about that. Do you ever find yourself in those situations working across 20 some odd, you know, countries where all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, this situation totally changed. We have to adapt or or is it just kind of like like what does that look like either in Ukraine or in other contexts that you guys are involved in? Yeah, typically the way that it works is there is a, an initial response time and we don't we don't do work. If there's a disaster somewhere, we're not going to go in and do relief work in that area. Of course. But I think it is uh, crazy to be in a place, to have a network of church partners, to have staff, and to have a disaster happen, and then to sit back and say, well, that's not what we do. Uh, right. No. There's this, there's this moment of time that is the immediate response immediately after a crisis, before the larger organizations can kind of mobilize, oftentimes... Um, and the question is, how do we do the most good in a short amount of time? Typically for us, that is like a two-week time period of just the immediate, how can we go after two weeks? Oftentimes there's a larger uh, agencies that are doing it. And kind of our niche is through the local churches that we are partnering with, how can we get resources to them so they can participate in the immediate response? And that's been the area that we focused. But then to your point, we do not stay there. <laughs> That is a very short term, 
our niche, our organization is in the longer term development space through capital mobilization and uh, supporting and equipping entrepreneurs. So we very quickly get back to that after that initial time period. Uh, Ukraine was a little bit different because the crisis, uh, there were so many questions. So we did stay in the uh, relief um, and supporting the local churches for longer than we would typically do. But we are now at a spot where we um, are back to the work. And you mentioned Brian Fickert, and um, I was so grateful. We ended up doing some um, joint work for Ukrainian churches. How in the midst of this crisis do they not, um, do they do they set up programs in such a way that they're not creating long-term dependency? And so that was another great partnership that we had. Uh, they're so good at that. And um, yeah, it was, uh, we did some training for uh, Ukrainian pastors uh, that seems like it was very well received and helped think about how do we steward this moment in time in light of the longer term growth and development uh, of 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 Ukraine and of the Ukrainian church. Yeah, I love, I love that. What you just that last fifteen or so minutes, folks. If you didn't catch all that, go back listen to it again with the with the mind of listening for not just talking about collaboration, but the different aspects of collaboration that go in there. The fact that when they were first in Ukraine and they're like, hey, this does, this isn't working for us. How can we, how can you help us to help ourselves? Like, how can you help us to actually do the stuff? And and then that requires working together to come up with solutions, right? And that's what collaboration is. And then as you're talking about the relief, like you come in and as we talk about sports analogies, we're both soccer guys, you know? So the idea of you have to play out of position sometimes, but you don't stay there. You go back to your position when that other when its time is right. Sometimes there's someone hurt. You got to play out of position a little longer, right? But that's not the norm. That's not the that doesn't become the rule as you talked about in your book, mission drift. It's easy to to go off and do that. But if everyone's drifting, no one's going to be in the position to do their best work. And so, what does that look like? I just I just love those pictures that you created there because that's it's easy to just say, yeah, we need to collaborate, we need to work together. But there's not a lot of examples of good collaboration going on and so i just really appreciate that so you know we're gonna we're gonna move on to the next topic but you know i just i couldn't help but doing that if you if you listen to the show for longer than a minute and a half you know that collaboration is my heart connection is my heart i know that's your heart as well peter so that's you know one of the reasons why i've just really appreciated the conversations we've been able to have you have this this book now gift of disillusionment and um you know it's it's always funny i love your the titles of some some of your books it's like it doesn't sound like a gift but um, but when you've done this work long enough, you totally get it. You totally get it with that, what you're talking about there. But this idea of, you know, Brandon and I talk about COVID, you know, COVID obviously caused a lot of disillusionment, uh, international wars, other issues. I mean, just you don't have to read very far to see issues that could cause all kinds of other issues, right? That then become massive issues in themselves, like anxiety and depression and all these other things going on. But People are becoming more and more disillusioned about life, society, the work we devote ourselves to. But can you just describe what you're talking about in your in your recent book about the the sense of disillusionment as a gift? What does that look like for people that don't just like go, oh yeah, that makes sense? Um, can you describe that for us? Yeah, we believe that there is a common journey, and while the timeline differs, there is a journey that a lot of us are on in this space, and it's a journey that begins with an element of idealism, and Phil, you've been doing this work a long time. Brandy, you've been doing this work a long time. My guess is you remember at the early stage, you remember what was it that prompted you to say, this isn't right, let's make an impact. There are individuals that do not have homes. Let's figure out how we make an impact. And there's an element of idealism. And I, in in no ways, am dismissing that. Uh, the world is positively impacted by the idealists, those that see something wrong and have the courage and the willingness to step in and say, let's do something about it. But my guess is that all of us who start with an element of idealism, if we do the work long enough, as you just said, we realize this is way more complicated. This is way more difficult than I ever thought. And we see the challenges with institutions. We see the challenges of organizations. We see the challenges in ourself um, in doing this work. And so the question is, uh, what replaces idealism? And oftentimes, idealism is replaced by this stage of disillusionment. But the question is, is disillusionment a bad thing? And you're exactly right. 
oftentimes we see it as a bad thing, but letting go of illusion, is that a bad thing or is that actually a necessary step for meaningful work, for progress? And we found that all the leaders that we found, they had a moment of disillusion, but they didn't stay there. They didn't get stuck there. The question is, what do we do when our idealism is confronted by reality and we find ourselves feeling disillusioned to some extent? And the answer is those individuals that in those moments go inward, um, most of the time that leads to some unhealthy places, uh, leads to elements of cynicism. Uh, this idea of, well, the world is just too broken, or this organization, uh, they have no clue what they're doing, or this is all just a farce. Uh, it's all a fundraising strategy. Real change is not possible. And cynicism is on the rise in our culture. This idea that it can't be done, so let's mock those who are still trying. Uh, the analogy of let's get off of the dance floor, let's go to the balcony, and let's make fun of the people that are still there trying to do the dance. Uh, but we believe there's another way to go. And this is where our faith, uh, we believe, uh, influences everything about the way that we deal with that. Um, it changes our expectation. You know, one of the least uh, quoted promises of Jesus uh, is when Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. <laughs> in this world, it's going to be hard. That is not often quoted, but I find it to be such an incredible perspective. When Jesus is talking to his disciples, it's like, hey, lean in lean in. This is going to be crazy difficult, the mission that you're on. But take heart. I have overcome the world, but have hope. Uh, there is more to this story than just this moment. And so that's really what we tried to find. We tried to find individuals around the world that have every reason to give up because of how difficult it has been. They have every reason to give up because of how they had been hurt or treated. And yet they didn't choose cynicism. They stayed in the game. And so the book is really profiling a lot of global leaders that have had incredible harm and hurt, uh, incredible challenge in their life, and yet chose hope. They chose to stay in the game. And why is that? And what can we learn from them? And what might that instruct us? Because we will have our seasons, the dark nights of the soul. We will have our seasons when it feels like everything is falling apart. And in those moments, how can we hold on to hope? Uh, instead of giving in to cynicism. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I've often said to people, I'm a hopeful realist. And it's probably why I'm not a founder of things as much because I think that, that it, you know, that idea of that it is, it, there's so much that you could just say, forget it. But there's also, you could live in la la land. And I think there, what is that happy medium? What does that look like? And so, you know, in, in the context of, of orphan care, we often find this too. I mean, you so often you find that the the founders, especially in visionaries that come into this work, um, not just lean toward idealism. Most of the, most most people coming in are like, we're going to change the world. We have the thing that's going to solve this problem. We have the the I remember one of the first interviews we talked about poverty and you're like, well, there's no silver. There's no one thing. Right. There's all these different things. And so but we come in with this idea of we're going to change the way the world thinks of orphan care. And, and quickly, you know, I think in your book, you have this quote that says, sooner or later, our expectations collide with our experiences. We realize there is more complexity, nuance, and challenge than we anticipated. We learn it is harder to solve problems than we thought. People disappoint us. Teams run into conflict. There are no easy solutions to deeply entrenched problems. I feel like you're describing the last 15 years of my life there, right? I mean, it's like that is so true when we look at it. And at some point, I know I came to the point where I just, I just was feeling completely incompetent. And I heard God saying, yeah, you are incompetent, but I'm not. And I'll give you the wisdom and discernment to know what you need to do. And so it's that idea, that same, that same idea of the, the, that other promise of Jesus, the idea of the Psalm where it says, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm trusting in the Lord or James, where it says, consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. You don't hear those preached on very often. People don't want to think about those bad things. But what are the reasons why that idealism is not sufficient for leaders, particularly in this work with vulnerable children and families? Oh, I think you, yeah, I think I think you answered it so so well, Bill. I, I think you you nailed it uh, in that. Of uh, it is <laughs> it is just difficult work um, on that and the. The, again, that's where, again, not to be 
in any way speak negatively of those initial impulses. I think Mm -hmm. those are the right impulses to see something that's wrong and to say, yeah, let's have the courage to step in. Let's have the courage to not turn away. Let's have the courage not to close our ears and eyes and pretend that there's not real hurt and harm that's happening right now and to let's do something. Um, But again, that question of what do you do when you realize it's just more difficult than you thought? Um, Or what do you do when uh, funding doesn't come in? Why aren't people as excited about this as they should be? Or people end up um, having some crazy things that uh, they say to you (laughs) that are really hurtful. Um, So I think in those moments, what do we do? What do we do? And and that's where, uh, you know, I think the prophet Jeremiah is such an interesting example. We, we found him as kind of the case study in all of scripture of someone who did not stop, even though he had every reason to. Um, he was, I mean, his nation is falling. People, no one listened to him. Uh, he is murdered, murder attempts uh, multiple times. Um, he is ostracized. He's put in stockades. He's mocked in front of the Benjamin Gate and everything goes wrong. And the question that uh, it prompts is, Jeremiah, why did you keep going? Why, why didn't you give up? Why, why didn't you say, what God has called me to is too difficult? I'm out. And um, there's just an incredible way that I think he becomes uh, a case study in what it looks like to have a true sense of grit and resilience that is grounded in a story that is bigger than himself. He has this wonderful line. He says, you know, there's a difference between those who try to trust in their own strength and those who say, you know what, I cannot do this on my own help. Um, And really that that, uh, contrast that Jeremiah did, he talks about in Jeremiah chapter 17, is really, I think, what we saw lived out in our world today. The very significant difference of saying, I'm going to just do this in my own power, in my own strength. I don't think those stories end well versus what you said, which is come to the end of your abilities. Say, God, uh, I got to believe it's true that you love these kids more than I do. Help. Um, I can't do this on my own. And uh, that actually, that position of humble dependency on on God's strength and not your own actually is a key to unlocking true longevity and grit and resilience in the service that we do. Yeah, absolutely. And can you give, do you have like an example or two that you can think of people, the stories that you, you've seen over the last, you know, few years in the midst of this just craziness that our world has seen of people who are really living in that hopeful realism that, that, you know, going through disillusion and coming out the other side and going, yeah, I, I, I see the hope even in the midst of this nuance and craziness and just junk. Yeah, maybe that's the story behind the story, Phil. That's the reason why we wrote the book. Uh, it was around the same time that our world felt like it was falling apart. Mm-hmm. There never been a season of more challenge. And then you look reflected on the national stage and uh, inundated with podcasts like The Rise and Fall of mm-hmm. Mons Hill. You, you have mm-hmm. these leadership, high-profile leadership failures and guess what gets the press? Those are the stories that get the press. Yeah, and yet right. those are not the only stories. So we went on a search to say, let's find the counterfactual. Let's find the other stories uh, that maybe don't make the headlines in the same way. And so I guess the answer to your question is every single one that we profiled in the book was a story that was so life-giving, so encouraging. Um, you know, I was just really one of the early stories is Joanne Lyon. Um, she leads World Hope International, and she had a lot of hurt uh, hurt from the church that she was a part of that seemed apathetic to the needs of the world, like truly apathetic. And there was something in her that said, that is not right. Um, and then she had hurt as she stepped out, and and I had time with her, and um, you know she is in her 80s, and she is so full of vibrancy and energy and pouring into the next generation. And there is nothing cynical about her. Uh, There is a hope-filled optimism uh, that I would describe her with. And so it's just, yeah, tell us your story. um, Tell us your journey. And what is it that has allowed you to still hold on to hope? Um, And or, you know, 
anyway, lots of other stories uh, that I could share. Yeah. That really was the great joy of, of doing the research. So basically what you're saying is buy the book and read it. Is that pretty much the and answer? If you don't want to buy the book, I'll give it to you. Like, send me an email. I'm happy to share it. Uh, but I think our world needs more hope right now. <laughs> Absolutely. And again, just 100%. like if you want to have a little bit more life and energy in your work and in your work, just for yeah. a period of time, stop the doom scrolling, stop mm-hmm. listening to all the negative stories, and find out individuals that are still doing good, still in the game, buy them coffee, and say, tell me how you have been able to hold on to hope. That yeah. that will be good for your soul. Absolutely. No, and I, I was obviously kidding. I We wouldn't have you on if we didn't think. I mean, I honestly, I've, I've yet to read a book of yours that I wasn't like, amen, this is so needed in our, in our culture today. And I think it's because you write with what you're going through and you write with things that you've struggled with and you've struggled through and you've learned from and you're continually learning and you're writing and you're a much more prolific writer than I do. That's why I do podcasting instead of writing because I, I can talk to people. But but I think that that idea um, that you talk about where we have story after story that you can just pull out these ideas and you see consistency of what is, you know, common, common, common threads going through them you can pull out of. But can you just share maybe one or two of those common threads that you saw that um, were ways that people were developed Adel, you said that she has this hope, op- this optimistic, like this hope, hopeful optimism. You, what is the kind of common thread of these different people that you wrote about and that you found that allowed them to do that in the midst of a, a world that really isn't very hopeful um, at all? If you're just looking at the world, right? I mean, I think obviously I think that's part of the answer. But what do you what do you think? What are, what are some of those a couple of those common threads? Phil, just one point on what you were saying previously is you're exactly right. My process to write is actually start with what am I struggling with and how can I use a book writing process to speak (laughs) to people that are further and farther along in the journey than I am and what can I learn from them? So you're absolutely right. While I am thrilled when other people resonate with a message, the uh, the maybe not so hidden secret is I write about what is the biggest struggle uh, that I am uh, facing right now. And uh, hopefully that resonates with someone else um, Mm -hmm. as well. But that is the start is what's the question? What's the struggle? And then who should we talk to uh, that might yeah. be further and farther along? And then what are the themes that we can pull out? And, you know, in this, there are certainly uh, some core themes. Um, the the one interesting one we already talked about was just that difference of inward and outward. I love the quote from Tim Keller uh, when he talks about the essence of gospel humility is not thinking too highly of yourself or too lowly of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. And uh, that was a consistent theme. It was this outward focus, upward and then outward focus of uh, tell me more what I just, yeah, leaning in to the relationships um, and not being so preoccupied with yourself. Uh, Another theme that came up again and again is every time and even as we told the stories, we told individual stories, but the individuals were so quick to say, this is not my story. And let me tell you about the group of people that mm-hmm. have been working on this together. Uh, you can look back to uh, the Clapham Circle and all of the work that happened with William Wilberforce might have been a name that people were more familiar with, but there was a group of individuals that were around him. And whether that was reforming education in Oklahoma City or whether that was uh, figuring out a way of reforming a church um, in Zimbabwe or um, outreach programs in Guatemala, um, in a community, they all told their story in light of key relationships. And, um, you know, that's another thing. There were no solo stories that we heard. The long-term service was sustained by others. Um, mm-hmm. They had people that showed up when their world collapsed um, on that. So th- th- that was maybe another theme um, uh, in that um yeah. And then also just the ability to keep coming back to um, to look beyond the hurt and harm. And individuals had a sense of what is the mission that we're about. They had like a North Star that allowed them to see the current, uh, I mean, maybe to use the uh, nautical analogy, like there's a lot of big waves, but they had this ability to say, no, what is it that I want to spend my life pursuing? And to keep focused on that that didn't minimize the waves or challenges right now, 
but it did give them clarity where they were going and that was helpful. So anyway, there, there's a bunch more, but those are uh, maybe some of the some of the uh, yeah. little things that uh, that we consistently heard. Good news is we have the book we can read. So there it is. And it and it is a good book. I, I enjoyed starting to get into it myself. And I really, as I had mentioned earlier, I think it's really a book for the moment. Um, I have to, you know, we talk about the difference between podcasting and writing, reading. I I do both, but I find myself to be a chronic podcast listener. And even within kind of the Christian blogos or uh, you say podosphere? What do you say? Podcastosphere. I don't know what it is. That's a good question. We got to figure that out. That's the next book. Peter, you want to figure that out and research and talk around the world, see what people call it? That'd be great. Well, we're going to have to do a podcast series because we're diagnosing anyways, whatever you call all the Christian (laughs) podcasting as a collective. uh, There are some shows that have gone more and more towards cynicism. And I find myself, even if I say, wow, they have good views, they're very intelligent and all of these things. I'm starting to kind of diminish them or like I'm not I'm not listening to them immediately or I kind of feel it out because you can't just keep inputting cynicism like it, and and in a way it's it's too easy right it's too easy to just mm-hmm. be cynical yep yep um and I know I probably use words like this is a cynical approach or I'm going to be bearish about this or I know that it that it creeps into my own outlook and and how I think about or discuss things and i just feel as though we do need to to not to be sober-minded you know to be sober-minded and realize yeah like some things have gone sideways here but not to the point where we're just casting stones and and i appreciated the analogy that you uh shared there as far as the people that go up to the balcony and you know poke fun at all the people that are still down on the dance floor i feel like that's very apropos um and hopefully we will be people that will continue because it's like, then what? Like if we're just being cynical and we're just going to do that until we die, like then what work are we doing? Right. We should, we should continue to be engaged. Um, even if they're, even if we have gone through that disillusionment and Phil, it wasn't until you mentioned rooting for rivals that maybe this is a theme with Peter's books where it's the juxtaposition between like gift disillusionment, rooting rivals like uh, there's like a juxtaposition here so of course, uh, of course. Uh, he doesn't yeah. just come up with these book titles they're it's like they're, everything's they're brewing and they're coming they're coming through that. <laughs> i will i do want to say you know when you do the dance floor analogy i think there's some of us that's a, even the analogy goes further that some of our dancing doesn't look great at first and it often oftentimes dancing doesn't look good when one person's doing it but if a group of people do the same dance together all of a sudden it looks really good Right. So I think that that goes for some of our work too. some of our work by itself is not that pretty. But when you put it together with a lot of other work, it becomes a it becomes a dance. Right. So anyway, that was just something that well, I'm, just I'm, that just I'm, came. I think that that work that into the next book, Peter. Well, I'm, I well yeah. or don't uh, it, at least not if it not if, not if it uh, not if it brings to mind a mental image of Phil dancing. That's uh, probably true. If you've ever seen me dance, you've clearly that's at least heard of me dancing at some point. So, <laughs> although as we as we discussed in the last uh, recording, you you are a goalkeeper, so your dancing is probably a little weird. Uh, as most everything I do is a little are. weird. But everything I do is a little weird. Yep. Okay. Well, enough about that, um, Peter. Uh, you know, as we were, th- as we had mentioned, you know, this being your fourth time on the podcast, I don't know if Phil has subjected you to our closing questions each and every time, but you are somebody who uh, reads a lot, watches and listens, you know, as we talked about. Uh, so I'm going to give you, uh, since we have not had this question for at least five years uh, since you were last on the show, uh, we want to hear from you. What have you read, watched or listened to? that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children and families with excellence. And it could be recent. Uh, you've been given this, this uh, question at least once or twice or three times before. So what would you say? Uh, the, the first one that comes to mind, you got to read Phil's book. I mean, that's, that's just like the starting <laughs> wow. point. Oh, yeah. But the one that uh, relates to the conversation that we're having uh, right now is, and I think it does relate to this theme of how do we, how do we keep doing this? Uh, but I was really impacted by Philip Yancey's autobiography that came out recently, Fading of the Light. Um, and oh, I'm getting the title wrong. And that's why I was just looking it over on my bookshelf. 
uh, but uh, Philip Yancey's newest book. And part of the reason why I found it so interesting is he has this story of a lot of uh, hurt and harm, and yet he discovered grace, like real, true grace that has sustained him. So a lot of these similar themes, but told through uh, uh, the autobiography of someone that I've long appreciated his writing. So that's one that stands out, and maybe it's not directly in the field of um, orphans of vulnerable children, but it does relate to the themes of how do yeah. we keep on going. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's really good, Peter. And whatever the title is, we will definitely leave it. Is it, it Where the Light Fell? Is it Where Thank the Light you. Fell? Yes, yeah. That's okay. the right one. Correct. I just have you read that, Phil? I have not. I just did, I acted as producer and I looked it up on my on my phone. So we will we will link that in the show notes. We will also link um apparently if Peter's just giving away his book to certain people, he won't mind. But there's actually a really helpful uh, diagram that uh, Peter uses to kind of talk about this kind of like idealism and then kind of when the disillusionment comes and kind of what you can turn that into. Um, we'll put that in the show notes as well, just so people can kind of visualize the the, the journey uh, in a very simple uh, uh, way as well. So, And then we'll do a link to uh, the book about Philip Yancey. That's really good. All right. And uh, Brandon, one more thing, just real quick. And I have to do this every time we talk with Peter is it's okay. our book, Peter, our book. Oh, that's right. Because you were part of that book, Peter. So just making sure that you remember that you're always part you, of Who did team. you write Gift of Disillusionment with? with? I did Gift of Disillusionment with Chris Horst and Jill Heisey. And you are right. I have never been an author always a co-author and working with you, Phil, on yours. Thanks for including me in that one too. That was amazing. (laughs) That was great. It was great. That's awesome. Uh, All right. So what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love OVC with excellence, orphan and vulnerable kids with excellence? Yeah. You know, again, I, I, this might be a little bit uh, out of the uh, realm of normal answers. um, And I think so highly of I just had time with Jed Medifin again recently. I think so highly of him, what he's doing with the Christian Alliance for Orphans and his care for people is extraordinary. But the person that uh, comes to mind is, I think I had this incredible benefit of um, having a grandfather um, who had this ability to, to see people. And when you were with him, you felt like you were the most important person in the entire world. So Grandpa Ellison comes to mind as someone who, um, if we could all have that gift of in a world of distraction, if we could have the gift of presence and focus and care, I think that is one of the most incredible ways to think about addressing uh, issues with kids. If they know they're valued, if they know they are held in high regard and uh, the ability to silence the distractions and be fully present, I think that would I think that would have a dramatic impact in the way that we think about caring for kids. Yeah, I think that would have a dramatic impact in the way we do everything, right? I think in today, to be present is so hard with all the distractions and all the noise. And uh, to go back to grandpa, like so often we say, do what your grandparents did, right? We have to kind of be careful. That. It's like, do what our grandparents, because we're getting older and older. And so like the current grandparents probably do have phones and stuff. But once that came, it that presence is hard. So anyway, thank you so much, uh, Peter. I just, I love our conversations. I just am very, like I said, I, I'm very grateful for you, for our friendship. And I just look forward to seeing what God is going to continue doing in and through you uh, as you continue doing what you feel called to do by him. So thanks, Peter. Both ways. What a joy to connect again. Thanks for all you do to equip and encourage so many of us. So thank you both. Well, once again, uh, just a great interview, great conversation with uh, with Peter Greer. I like I said, this guy has so much to offer us. If you haven't read his books, go check them out. That I mean, that's my recommendation. I could recommend those every every episode, and it wouldn't be a waste of my breath because he he writes stuff that comes from his experience that is written to people doing the work, written to other people who might not understand it, and he writes in such a easy accessible way like everyone can access this access this information oftentimes we we will recommend heady books and things like that 
these have some themes that are very, very, very important. And some of them are pretty complex, but he brings it down to a level that we can absolutely understand them. And he has story after story of just real people doing real work. So can't say any more about him than that. And we talked a lot about the the nuances and the issues during the interview. So I don't feel like we need to do that right now any much more, unless you have something else to add to that, Brandon. Um, let's get to it with the with the recommendations you have, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, no, uh, well, yeah, Peter Peter is such the real deal, as we said. Um, and I would just encourage, you know, I'll, I'll give a, a recommendation of a different book here in a moment, but um, I think one of their books, Created to Flourish, is like a free download on Hope International's website, which is mm-hmm. which is another mm-hmm. good resource. Like, never allow Think Orphan to just be well, I j- only listen to the podcast. Like we want to give you guys good things to think yeah. about, right? That's what the whole nature of the show is based on. Um, at the same time, we want you guys to follow up, you know? So I definitely encourage you guys. We can learn a lot from Hope International and Peter's writing. So definitely go check out their website. Um, and this newest book, uh, The Gift of Disillusionment is such a timely book. So definitely check that one out. I do have another recommendation and it kind of goes back to what you and I were discussing uh, before the interview, uh, and that's around parenting. Um, we were talking a little bit about kind of like summer activities and uh, things that we're doing, lessons we're trying to teach our kids. And there's a book that I am reading and nearly finished with. Um, I actually set it somewhere like a weekend ago, and I need to find out where did I set this book <laughs> down. But it is it is The Intentional Father by John Tyson. Mm. Um, it is one of the most important books I think I have ever read. And I have a 16-year-old son. Uh, my oldest, Moses, turned 16 a couple weeks ago. And um, bef- he's already the size of a man. Uh, he's starting to beat me in athletics, which I you know, take exception to uh, because I'm such a sports guy myself. <laughs> but yeah. aside from him growing physically, he's growing you know, spiritually, he's maturing, he's engaging with, you know, the opposite sex. He is uh, learning what it means to be a man, how to interact within society. And uh, this book, The Intentional Father by John Tyson, has been so formative for me to kind of think through what does it mean to be a dad raising a son. Um, and I have three sons. So after Moses, I got Shepherd and Bishop coming up after and uh, this book has been so helpful to really kind of be intentional about fathering. And like it gives like super practical stuff, like creating moments, wrapping around a group of men that will speak into the lives of our sons, showing them what it means to follow Christ as a man, what it means to be good at being a man, you know. Um, and this book has been just so good. Um, a few days after his birthday, um, we jumped in and created a moment. You know, us Americans, we're not always good at rites of passage. And um, what this book is, is like, let's create a rites of passage. So John Tyson had Mm -hmm. done The Primal Path, for those that are familiar with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And this book is really kind of walking people through that. So a few days after, um, after Moses's birthday, we... Um, I got a few guys, a few men, you know, neighbors, people from church. uh, And we went and did a hike uh, here in the Tacoma area and then went by the water, by the Puget Sound. And we just had a time of affirmation, of wisdom sharing, of prayer, just saying, hey, Moses, you're stepping up into this space of being a man and really articulating what does that mean? And um, we had family members that don't live in the Seattle area that wrote in. Um, people that couldn't make it that wrote in or recorded videos to just kind of share, you know, this is, uh, you know, these are godly men. And, you know, how can we speak into this young man's life as he enters? So um, you guys, uh, there's just that you, you can go check out uh, Gabe Lyons podcast, the Q ideas. He, uh, John Tyson had spoken about it there. Um, John Tyson, uh, he preaches regularly. So there's a lot of stuff that you can type uh, or that you can get into to kind of familiarize yourself with this. But this is a recommendation for dads that are raising sons. Uh, yeah. it, and uh, that specifically because, um, you know, we talk about fatherlessness. We talk about the the ill effects of kind of um, mm-hmm. whether it's absenteeism or, or 
uh, poor ways of viewing masculinity. Um, but this is really about what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ and to be a father that's raising a son to be a man. And uh, yeah. it's it's just so good, man. I can't recommend it high enough. Yeah, you know, it sounds like it's like the modern day raising a modern day night, right? Like I think it's probably addressing a lot of the issues that that book talked about, but in a different light. And and I I love John Tyson is just a brilliant dude. Um, I believe it's Think Media now. Think with Q at the end. Oh, um, really? So they oh, did they change they it? Did a brand a brand shift at the last conference to to think. Because I think Q was too with well, QAnon. Yeah, I could do no, it with QAnon. Terrible time to be so, called Q. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they changed it to Think with a Q at the end. Um, so if you Google like Think Media Tyson, I'm sure a bunch will pop oh, yeah. up. He's spoken several times at Q conferences, and and um, just a just a good dude, solid man of God who has a huge heart for for men and uh and love it love that he's been able to put put pen to paper and put get some great resources out there so yeah i i second that recommendation and you know as a father to two boys and as i was talking about before the interview just realizing things we may not have taught very well we're actually going back and doing some of that in the financial areas and you know i think spiritually fortunately i believe like that was something we focused on which is very very important um, but it's not, it's not the only thing in the world sure. that we need because spiritually, spiritual side is implicated by all the others as well. And Satan will attack where we're weak. Right. And so if we're not fortifying those areas and truly building up, um, our children to be able to, to recognize, um, you know, the world's temptations and, and the world's issues, um, we're setting them up for, for failure. Yeah. And that is what we don't want to do right so how can we truly raise up godly men um love it love it all right cool maybe we can get uh reach out to john get him on we can talk about it i tried um, i don't so, know how to get a hold of him <laughs> <laughs> i'll see i'll see if i can do it from another angle so if you know anybody out there if you know john tyson um you know have him connect with brandon when he's you know, have him answer brandon's email so have all right guys well, friends hey, with him but I don't know yeah. if I'm going to use my social capital. Anyways, <laughs> it's an amazing book. If, if anyone else wants to, if anyone else wants to use your social capital, that'd be a great conversation. I think we'd love to have it. If you want to hear that, make it happen. All right, folks. Well, hey, appreciate y'all. And uh, as always, hope that you're taking what you're learning from this from this podcast and you're using it to um, really help you know how you can love orphan and vulnerable children and families with excellence. Thanks a lot. Have a great couple of weeks. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.